tiny people and we play with them. Ooh, ooh, we paint tiny people and we play with them. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Creighton Crowbar Miniatures podcast or episode 27 of Miniatures Sometimes if you're nasty. I'm not. My name is Chris Thurston, and tonight I'm joined by Matt Chimp Ward. Hello. I'm a little bit nasty. Yeah, I've heard that. And uh, long-time listeners of this uh, podcast uh, will note the absence of one uh, Tom Senior. And eagle-eyed listeners to the previous episode may remember uh, me saying that I didn't know uh, if I'd be able to do very much more uh, <laughs> miniatures podcasting. Well, Bad luck me, because uh, some in, an incredible turn of events in this time between recording the previous episode of this back in March and the present day, uh, the 1st of June at the time of recording, um, Tom has got an amazing new job. He is now a uh, managing editor over at uh, Warhammer Community for Games Workshop, which means I don't think he can ever do this ever again. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it, does it? I was going to say that um, we're sort of cursed, but for Tom, it's the opposite of whatever a curse is. It's a good thing. A buff. <laughs> He's received a buff. Yeah, so Tom being over at Games Workshop now means obviously he is, he is privy, I suppose, to all of their secrets and therefore can't join us for our ill-informed takes on this side of the fence. So uh, as as ever, we kind of think of this little pod as being a kind of sporadic uh thing when we have something from the world of uh, miniatures and most likely age of sigma that we're excited to talk about um but it's just you and me now jim i know it's scary you've done it whatever long game you were playing it's paid off it's worked finally yeah exactly bumped him off <laughs> it, but to a better he's literally gone to a better place like it's you know it's not it's not <laughs> even a euphemism i hope he's having a great time at the time of um at the time of uh, maybe this is a segue into some of our kind of subjects we're going to talk about this month, this this period of time, um, uh, is is Tom having just finished his uh, first week, I think, and that culminating in a fairly a fairly chunky old reveal. Yeah, what a hell of a first week! Yeah, uh, indeed, getting thrown in at the deepest possible end with uh, with Dominion. <laughs> Yeah, the the new um, well, Age of Sigmar Third Edition and Dominion. It's new start kit. I think deep end for Tom, but I don't want to speak for him. But I assume there's something comforting about coming in at the beginning of a new wave for Stormcast specifically, <laughs> right? He's waited yeah. until the Clarion really called, I think, to to insert himself at the optimum possible time. So yeah, so there's a lot of speculation about what this was going to be. Um, Rumours circulating for a long time about a third edition of Age of Sigma. It's kind of the right time for it. Um, and the big box was revealed last weekend, uh, which pits a new kind of band of Stormcast, uh, sort of uh, slightly more lightly armoured kind of Greco-Roman hoplite style Stormcast and their mm. big tank pals. Um versus some really cruel boys they're the cruelest boys yeah it's a it is a it's a hefty old box right this the new kit mm. uh, and i think everyone every stormcast 
collector in the in the world is crossing their fingers that these units of three new paladins are not like the old units of three paladins and right. do actually represent a unit you can use in the game. But um, it looks incredible. Like the the box is amazing, right? Yeah, um, it's. I mean, it, uh, the box is amazing. It just, it's uh, like I think, like looks great. But also, I think it's a really like compelling set of things. It's interesting how I think lately, and we're obviously going to talk about another release that's like this. The a lot of the new AOS stuff has threaded this line between feeling very new and all of it having this sort of quite retro feel in some mm. ways, like calling back to old fantasy battle factions and things. Yeah, and the new. Orcs, the new orcs, the cruel boys, they are like a completely new concept, I guess. They are um mork flavoured orcs, basically the cunning ones. Mm-hmm. Um which takes the form of lots of like yeah, sort of they use crossbows. They do they use tricks and traps that <laughs> other orcs wouldn't. Um but they also have the kind of the look and feel they're, they're clearly inspired by like truly ancient Warhammer. Yes. right like back to 80s orcs and that's uh, like even even down to the kind of uh weirdly long lower jaws of like pointy faces that uh games workshop moved away completely from at one point or from yeah, most of the they, history they seem to have had quite like a marmite reaction because they their design aesthetic is so different from every other warhammer orc right they yeah the big comparison seems to be to like middle earth style orcs more than your trads games workshop apart from their pink noses obviously you've got to keep mm. that mm. yeah completely um but that sort of you know clash like it kind of remembers it reminds me of the old kind of like um for some reason it reminds me of the old kind of like empire greenskins box for fantasy mm. in a way like only in the sense that it's kind of the the human you know heavily armored faction versus a kind of kind of motley assembly of orcs and goblins effectively even though it's orcs and hobgobs um i don't know why but i think something about that so it gave me that slight throwback sense maybe i'm just primed to see it at the moment but it, i think they've done a really good job of of kind of you know um staking out some new aesthetic territory for aos while doing something that feels like probably more extremely warhammer than soul wars did yes yeah that makes sense Definitely makes sense. I do like as well, uh, you say that it's um, new stuff harking back to old Warhammer as well, but I like uh, with the Stormcast range that they've previewed, not in the box, that, but that's coming along alongside it, that they're sort of harking back to some of the Wave 1 Stormcast stuff, like the, yeah. the Knight Judicator, uh, with two incredible-looking Griffhounds, but that's a nice callback to you know the Wave 1 Judicators and the, and the Warrior Chamber. Uh, which is it's good to see that not every Stormcast release has to be a whole new chamber every time. Yeah, right. Because they haven't said that these are a chamber, right? It's just like it's mm. it's it's your same old liberators and so on wearing new kit and like the new heroes and things are all parts of the Stormcast command structure that kind of fit around that. Like one of like it's a Knight Vexilor as well, right? Which is just yes. a kind of you know uh, new version of something familiar. Yeah. Definitely. And the sassiest Griffhounds I think we've ever seen in Age of Sigma. Do you think there is someone in the design studio at Games Workshop who only does Griffhounds? Because I, they're, I, they're constantly, constantly making them. I mean, they like to do little Griffhound friends to go with uh, the Stormcast heroes, don't they? They like having their buddy. 
They're right. all yellow. Yeah, the the therapy dog kind of thing. It is particularly concerning with the new model who is wearing uh, the skin of one and is also mm. accompanied by one. And that one that he's accompanied by looks very cross, and you can tell why. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't you? <laughs> but this is the thing. I, I'm, I'm trying to think if, if any, um, you know, and obviously I think people obviously come back to the fact, it's important to come back to the fact that the miniatures design process is independent from the rules process in some ways. But genuinely, I think Griffhounds might be low-key up there with the model that has the most sculpts for exactly the same thing. <laughs> Right, there's a dedicated kit. There's so many individual Griffans in different contexts. That's um, true, and it looks like this new range is adding even more. Exactly, even more Griffans. I hope. Um, I hope they lean into that even more. You know, I want to see Stormcast armies just full of Griffans running around the battlefield. I think that's what we all want to see. Yeah, um, you know, obviously we'll get to this, but there's precedent now. Big blocks of direwolves running around in the game. We need those big blocks of slightly larger griffhounds. Griffhounds of every size. The chariot, they've announced the awesome-looking uh, chariot pulled by slightly larger griffhounds. Um, they call them griff chargers, which is the um, sort of paladors ride, right? They're, right, but they look but different. They look, yeah, they do look different. Not sure about that one. I'm not sure about the chariot in general. I don't know how I feel about a Stormcast chariot. Maybe I just need to get used to the idea. Um, I'm kind of glad to see it because I think... Well, here's here's a broader point, and maybe this is a segue into some real stuff. I think mm. chariots chariots and units of three elite things are the two types of units that they've often struggled to find a place for in, yeah. in AOS's strategic sandbox. So fingers crossed those units of you know new paladins the annihilators and the other ones the halberd ones <laughs> yeah fingers crossed they are actually you know matched play units of three and they're intended to be big and tough and things and that would make sense um and also you know it, having a chariot there means there's sort of incentive now to find interesting things for chariots to do and for <laughs> kind of these bodyguard units to do uh which can have you know knock-on effects down the line for other factions that I care about, like Chaos, for example, whose chariot has <laughs> never really had a job until it was given one recently as a mobile pulpit. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. And uh, the ever sad Beasts of Chaos players staring at all of their chariots that they're, uh, yeah, they exist. Exactly. They do. Um, what about the the uh, Uruk side of this? I, I really like them. Um, I, I think they clicked with me straight away. I know that you have lately embarked on an, uh, a green skin adjacent project. So how are you feeling about this expansion to Warclans? Uh, do we know it's an expansion to Warclans or is it just a they thing that's... They said that in the okay. reveal article. They said that they are just another Warclan, basically, alongside Iron Jaws and Bonesbithers. Uh, okay, so yeah, like I said, I've, I've, uh, I did actually... I always forget, but I do have a little, a small little Iron Jaws army, uh, and I have fallen down a bone splitter's hole. Um, <laughs> that sounds painful. <laughs> yeah, it's always the the danger of um, thinking, oh, I'll, I'll try out something new that looks looks fun, and now that I've got TTS, I can uh, I can try it out without fear of anything. And then the next thing you know, there's um, there's boxes and boxes of savage orcs. But yeah. Um, yeah. I, it's a weird one. I think if I were, I would not want to add them to an existing Uruk army. I, I think they look too different. 
Mm. And I don't know that they would co... I don't know that they'd look particularly cohesive with the Iron Jaws, especially. Uh, and I think they would probably show up how old the bone splitter scops are if you were to put them on the table at the same time. Um, it's an incredible range. I mean, it's an amazing range. Um, but I don't know. It's not one that I feel a need I feel a need for at the moment. I'm going to mm. say that, and then in a few months' time, it's going to be an absolute disaster zone. And I'm going yeah, to I mean, an Oryx, but... you, you've got to jinx yourself. It's not the same otherwise. Um, <laughs> do you think you will go for Dominion then as a as a set, or will you wait for the rulebook and the other bits that will follow? I think I probably won't. Um, I, because of Tom, I've always sort of siloed um, Stormcast away into an army I'd never collect, as it seems a bit pointless. Um, just, I mean, these models are gorgeous. The Praetors are incredible. The, the guys with the Halberds and the Clans. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so if I ever would, it would be with this. But I think probably I will be strong on this one and resist the urge. What about you? Um, I was strong last year on Indomitus. It's one of the only things I can say that about. And so I'm not <laughs> going to this year. I'm going to fail instead and, and probably go for it. It's worth uh, saying that Dominion is Dominion is the equivalent to Indomitus from last year. It's like this new pattern of releasing a new edition for a Warhammer game where the first box is, they kind of describe it as a starter set, but it's not. It doesn't come with dice or all the other things you'd kind of expect from a, a pure starter kit. It's really the starter box aimed at fans. Right, people yeah. who care to get a special edition of the rule book with a nice cover, who want a lot of models and are willing to pay the kind of north of a hundred pounds for the big box with all of the stuff in it. I exactly. have every expectation that that what follows will be the actual starter boxes where they break down into kind of the smaller price points and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of I resisted the temptation with Indomitus because I had I've always assumed I would collect a Space Marine army. And then I just know that I won't. I know that I don't want to. Thirty k, yes. Um, mm. Chaos Space Marines, yeah. Regular Primara Space Marines. I don't think it will ever happen. That's my in- inevitable false promise for you, right there. Um, <laughs> and I'd sort of, I'd actually kind of made my piece. I didn't want to do Necrons around the same time. Mm. And obviously, uh, as we'll get into talking about, you know, I've embarked on a new Age of Signal project uh, this month, and so maybe <laughs> I don't need two new armies. But I really love all the models in that box. Mm-hmm. And it's stuff that if I can get a copy, which is worth bearing in mind, then it's stuff that I, I wouldn't mind owning. Because I've also had that thing in the back of my mind of maybe I'll do Stormcast one day and I have like a custom chamber color scheme in mind. Mm-hmm. And I think I would like to give it a go. And the other okay. side of it is I have kind of what liked this idea of having, you know, an army in every Grand Alliance, even if it was just 1,000 points, things like doubles events and things like that. Mm-hmm. But we're in we're in flimsy excuse town here, but yeah, just follow me. But um, the one that I don't have is destruction, and because um, I have, you know, at least that of of, of the others. Um, You've got five hundred points of destruction. Oh, I do. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I do. Although I chaosed him up. That's a mega gargan. I chaosed him up, so I wouldn't feel quite right. Um, but um, that would be a power play to show up to a, <laughs> a doubles game with my five hundred points of sons of Bayamet. Um But I, I was looking at. Um, Gloom Spike gets for the longest time because I love Night mm. Goblins. Um, but I, I love a lot of individual models in that range. I don't want an army of them because yeah. I don't really like enough of the like regular stuff, right? 
the odd wizard or a mangler squig or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's come a point where you're painting 160 night goblins. You have to be pretty committed at that point, don't you? Yes. Right. Um, but I really love these new orcs. I think they're really cool. And also my, my first, I think I said this before, but my first ever Warhammer army ever was chaos dwarfs with loads of hobgoblins. Um, oh. because my mum got a big bag of them from a man in Southampton for 20 quid. As you do. As you do in, in the nineties. And, um, I have very fond memories of them. And the fact that the new hobgobs are very much a throwback to that and even have little coy little gestures in their law towards their distant, you know, furnace king masters who are almost certainly, you know, some, some new expression of the chaos towards the Legion of Asgore kind of tickles that part of me. So I think I, I think I will probably go for it. Uh, stock permitting because yes. I appreciate that that is obviously something that, uh, you know, uh, hangs around this uh, as a, a potential pro- cause of disappointment for some, maybe. Yeah, although with this, given, as you said, the contents of it is less um, based around things Games Workshop don't produce themselves, you'd hope that it would be better stocked or they would be prepared <laughs> for the uh, the kind of... Uh, purchases people are going to be making on this yeah i mean this is interesting thing. obviously indomitus came back as a kind of made to order thing and mm. you can still find it in places now right like it, it hovered around i think after the initial yeah. hype kind of died down um you know cursity has its issues but cursity has uh, you know just uh having dug into it a lot recently you know many 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 components many things going on in that mm. box that might make it a tricky thing to manufacture i think what's the and then obviously and as you say this is ultimately miniatures in a book in a box um what i find interesting about it is i find it uh, and this is anecdotal so people can write in if i'm desperately wrong about this <laughs> but what i have found is i i feel like the games workshop stock issue fomo subject has gotten to the point now where it's as much a meme as anything else in that it's something that the community, parts of the community are very attached to worrying about. But yeah. I wonder how many people who, um, what, there's, there's a Venn diagram of people who, if you mention one of the circles is people who really desperately want these boxes, whatever they are and must have them and, and will be devastated if they can't get them. Mm. And um, people who like, you know, um, and people who didn't get them, basically, yeah. right? And because I haven't, that's not something I see a ton of. You know, there's there's clearly people who regretted waiting on Curse City and things, and that makes complete sense. But I'm pretty sure everyone who uh, really seriously wanted Indomitus got it in the end. Yeah. Almost certainly. I can't imagine, or at least got the models that were in it, right? Right. Um, and that's not to discount FOMO as a thing, but it's obviously a thing that, you know, people somewhat have to manage for themselves. Less of a thing with a product like this, I'm guessing, unless, I mean, I can imagine that um, a model like, uh, you know, Industra, however mm. you want to pronounce that, the the lady with the huge spear in the wings um, that I desperately want to turn into a vampire. I imagine that she will probably not materialize separately, if ever, or for a very long time. Right, um, yeah, because so she shares a sprue with... Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of those models are, are going to come out in another way at another time. 
Yeah, completely. I find it interesting because when I am in a in a strange place in my own brain, something I do is I go on Instagram and I look at the official Warhammer feeds replies. I don't know why I do this. Um, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> as someone as someone who viscerally hates it when people um, uh, whinge about Warhammer for no reason, for some reason there's some so like sorry. moth to a flame. That's quite all right. Um, uh, you know, uh, there's some moth to a flame thing where I kind of can't keep going back to the bug zapper of of despair, but. I noticed, obviously, they've been doing a lot of things recently about iOS 3 and Dominion and all of this stuff. And I'm fascinated by this as somebody who works in the games community stuff as well, that you, I've noticed the kind of FOMO thing that this will sell out or how dare you kind of aspect of it enter in with the same frequency as I hate this, bring back the old world, which AOS has been, <laughs> been pelted with since the beginning, right? And my hobby, my secret shame, is to click on the profiles for these men, and they are always men. Oh, um, and just observe that, like, visibly at least from their Instagrams, none of them collect Warhammer. Mm. And yeah. I don't want to gatekeep. That's not intended to be, oh, if you collect Warhammer, you must put it on your Instagram. And obviously there are going to be some false positives there. But there really is this sense I have of, like, some some people just kind of want to have a moan and as real as these stock issues definitely are, and I don't want to discount that part of it, mm. uh, it has also entered this unhelpful space where it is just a kind of go-to moan for Twitch chat and Instagram yeah. comments. It's not, I mean, it's been exacerbated recently, I think, um, in people's mind's eye, but uh, GW FOMO is not exactly a new phenomenon. I remember, like, distinctly remember like my first memory of getting back into the hobby as an adult. Um was uh, experiencing intense. I just wasn't sure whether I should get the new uh, Space Hulk when it came out, right? Because I love Space Hulk, and I just I was like, it's a lot of money. I don't know if I should do it. I didn't do it, and I experienced severe missing out. Uh, and then they brought it back again, and I went for it then. But in the meantime, uh, that what that then made me do was after I missed out on Space Hulk. They they brought out Dreadfleet and I thought well, I can't miss out on Dreadfleet. That's gonna and then I bought Dreadfleet, um, which was obviously an enormous mistake. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, and I think I learned a valuable lesson that day. But uh, it's it, like I said, it's not like a what lesson was that? Don't buy Dreadfleet. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but I think yeah. Uh, you can you can FOMO too hard, I think, with uh, with Game Workshop, and particularly with a product like this, I, I can't see uh, it being too difficult to get your hands on these models if you really really want them. Right, I think I think you know um, there is such a thing of hype for hype's sake is exciting, and having the new thing at the same time as everyone else is exciting, and so mm. I can understand that side of it. And ultimately, all any of us are trying to do is manage our strange feelings about our toys. <laughs> Yes. Um, uh, that uh, this is a phenomenon that has launched a thousand podcasts. Um, but uh, I do think it's been it's been an interesting thing to keep track of lately. I did see, or I think it was either I think it was in either Instagram replies or maybe Twitch, a very sage piece of advice from an anonymous internet person. Someone was really getting into it about how you know this better not be another kind of limited run situation. You know. And, and people leaping to that assumption that the moment something is declared to be, a, you know, a limited run, get it while we've got it kind of situation, 
a lot of people leap to the assumption that that means no one will get it, which is not how selling out means. <laughs> you know, it's not, not really how that works. It means a lot of people will get it and then no more. Um, yeah. And someone replied to say, man, everything anyone sells is a limited run. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. Fuck, he's right in many ways. Bananas are a limited run in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> Makes you yeah. think. Yeah. I mean, eventually, uh, when society breaks down and we don't have the internet anymore, your your Steam shame pile will vanish. Right. And you'll never be able to buy any more Steam sale games. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I have faith that my really useful boxes full of miniatures I've painted will outlive me. But, you know, who knows what fate awaits them after that point. The point I'm making, I suppose, is if you zoom out far enough from June 2021, then this particular box of golden men and the gribbles they skewer will simply become another kind of, you know, pebble in the river of time. Yes, um, probably not necessarily the uh, philosophy that we should be officially espousing <laughs> the well through <laughs> it's one way of dealing with FOMO it is it is it is to zoom out um, we should maybe before we move on talking about what we've been up to um, mm. they, the, the, other, the other side to this is obviously box aside that game we both uh, love and play a lot of is getting a new edition and the first Ooh. details of that have started to emerge yeah um we don't have to go through them blow by blow but has anything jumped out to you that interests you and anything you're excited or worried about um i'm excited for all of it i think um i'm slightly nervous about um stand and shoot as a charge reaction and that's a very specific bit of nervousness Mm. uh for a, a game that i do love um but I think everything else sounds pretty exciting. Um, you know, having more command abilities, more things for your heroes to do, um, as I'm sure we'll get onto at some point later in the podcast. Mm. Um, that's always really good, really exciting. Um, they talked about uh, tweaking endless spells to make them more exciting. I think endless spells were AOS 2's best new thing that they then completely messed up so i'm hoping that they will um reignite the uh, the fire of endless spells because i think they're a great addition to the game yeah and um again like tweaking they're just doing all these little tweaks around the double turn uh, they've been doing it with general's handbooks over time and it sounds like they're doing more of it with aos 3 i think that's only a good thing keeping the double turn there but just making it Slightly less, uh, you know, disincentivizing you from taking it every time. I think that's a good, a good approach for them to be taking. Yeah, completely. What do you think? Is there anything that's standing out to you? I think um, I like the idea of, like you say, more reactive play, more uses for command points, more command points, and more kind of re- like more reasons for particularly. I hope particularly like small cheap heroes to exist. Mm. Um, uh, I I'm also in like the the things they've suggested about the double turn in terms of getting points for going second. One of the things that I thought was slightly weird about the way this was phrased initially, uh, uh, sorry Tom, if you're involved, uh, was only that it suggested that going first is a huge advantage in AOS, which it isn't. Um, uh, I think 
I think the, uh, it can be a huge. Advantage. It can be. It, it can be something you. I, I well, it would be interesting. It's not. Obviously, it's not, 40K. It's not quite forty k. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. and I think it's because I think it's because in AOS, not every army has the capacity to table someone if they get the first turn. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you can build something like that, but it's it's one build out of many. Um, but I think um, having just played a game where I really took advantage of the fact that whoever goes second doesn't have command points unless they already bought them, mm-hmm. um, where um, I am kind of glad to see that stuff uh, rebalanced. I'm curious to see what happens with the spells because I, like you, love the concept. I think they are in a position where I love the idea of these of the sort of classic Warhammer swingy magic where it can mm-hmm. bite you in the ass. But I know that players, particularly competitive players, are kind of efficiency and certainty-seeking missiles. And what that has done is it's meant that the only endless spells you really see are the ones that don't come with a downside or a potential downside or a very, very sure bets. And I want to see... Yeah. I'd like to see those... If they're going to make them more powerful and more dynamic, I kind of want to see, like, spell portal changed, right? So it's not just the the force multiplier that it currently is. Mm. Or... Um, you know, uh, I'd see all the ones yeah. that are D3 mortal wounds become more exciting. Uh, you yeah. know, your burning head, um, your Ravenax gnashing jaws, your purple sun. Those are the ones I think people really want to see on the table. And they're a combination of the ender spells that are the most dangerous to yourself and the least interesting in their effects. And right. uh, that seems like something that they should probably be addressing and yeah like you said there's been this creep with endless spells of either removing the downside infection endless spells by saying you know they don't affect yourself or by just letting some armies completely bypass the mechanic of your opponent getting to move them uh if you anything in mind there take the turn. <laughs> <laughs> just uh you know just thinking about um you know seraphim yeah let's ju- yeah yeah let's just seraphim. say it. they've got a name <laughs> Right. Uh, I, yeah, I think those mechanics have been poor for the game, and I, I hope uh, they probably can't do anything about uh, Seraphim at this point. Uh, that that road's been gone down, but making the generic ones more exciting would be something I'd really like to see. Yeah, totally. Um, and broadly, like the other thing we didn't mention is, where, so it feels like the focus of this edition—they're calling it the you know the Age of the Beast or the War of the Beast or mm. the, the Era of the Beast, it's some t- period of time of the Beast, the Minute of the Beast. Um, uh, and um, they've you know talked about also adding sort of I guess gener- what sounds like generic impact abilities for monsters. I'm not sure exactly how this works, but the kind of classic fantasy battles stomps and roars yeah. and things sounds like it. Yeah, and I, I'm really curious to find out how that's going to work. And how, but I like the idea in principle. You know, we mentioned earlier about wanting a home for chariots or, or these kinds of types of units that have always mm. been in aos but have never quite done the thing you kind of fantasize about them doing like yeah, chariot your chariots are not line breaking kind of infantry scattering you know big you know, charge units even though they try to be yeah solo monsters and solo unridden monsters have always just sort of been quite poor yeah um struggled to find a reason to exist and hopefully this will will give them that Everyone likes running their their five terrorgeist army, right? Yeah, exactly, see. exactly. Um, and so I think that's exciting. I, I mean, I think more for me because we can't really comment on it until we've seen the rules. Mm. But these sort of things being called out as things we're interested in changing are like 
I don't know if, if you'd asked me to write down like five things to change about AOS prior to knowing any of this, I don't know exactly what I've written down, but I agree with all of these, right? Written terrain in bold, big font, <laughs> double underlines, right? Why is this tree volcanic? Um, <laughs> I suppose that's the other thing is they're making the board smaller, like 40k. Yeah. Yeah, that was expected. Not surprised that, but yeah, I think I'm obsessed with this because I think my excuse for every time anyone's complained about anything in Age of Sigmar in the last six months has been to say, "Well, if they change the board size, this will all make sense." I don't know if that's true, <laughs> but I'm sticking with not true. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, it will obviously have an effect. I mean, the obvious, um, if when you look at Ninth Edition 40k, they obviously had a design goal to push the game into the middle of the board and they've absolutely achieved that um age of sigma is an interesting one because i feel like aos can be at its worst when you are just pushing everything into the middle of the board yeah um so uh, cautiously optimistic on the smaller boards uh as a man who runs predominantly melee armies uh it probably will only be a good thing for me but we'll see yeah i think i think aos is kind of it's interesting because it's kind of at its best when it's about like that game of playing your opponent's game in your head to try and coordinate the series of charges that's right for you because it is going to end up in a, ma- in a in a marsh pit somewhere right and so part of what i find exciting about the early part of a game of aos is the you know competitive orchestration of that marsh pit right you know you will have the place you want it to be i'll have the place i want it to be on my terms and I don't think any player ever quite gets what they want. And that's why the game is good to me, yeah. right? Like, And then how you negotiate that chaos or try and work around it is what makes it feel like a battle. And I think that can sometimes be subverted by, for example, the ability to um, hide away in corners of the board or string out units in a way that don't quite feel right. Um, mm. And I think a smaller board, if it promises to kind of truncate some of that and, and, and force a clash, then I think that's ultimately kind of exciting. And it will fit on an Ikea table, which is the real reason they've done this. <laughs> they've, they've done it so that I have to buy another battle map. Yeah. That's obviously what's going on here, the upsell. Um, you mentioned like stringing things out. I, like One of the things 40k Knights did was try to combat stringing out by having really, um, really stringent cohesion rules. You have to yeah. have is it two models within an inch of each other or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you want that in AOS as well? I, I I say nervously as a man who strings out clan rats professionally. As someone who just mostly won a game of Age of Sigma by having zombies arranged in a big question mark shaped conga line. <laughs> um, and then, oh man, and then did the, a silly conga line uh, for very entertaining purposes, which maybe I'll talk about later. Um, I don't know. I think, it, I think it's legitimately part of the game at mm. this point. And it's part of the way scenarios are designed. However, it is, it does for me fight the theme. And I think this is always the story of Warhammer of like mm. what your mind's eye view of the battle is versus what is tactically optimal. And yeah. it's at its best when those things are, they don't need to be a hundred percent overlapping, but where they at least sort of inform each other. And yeah. um, it's, it's at its weirdest, not necessarily worst, but weirdest and certainly least accessible for a new person when the correct way to play is the opposite of what you think you should be doing, right? Mm. You you know, you, you fantasize about, let's say you fantasize about collecting chaos because you love chaos warriors, you know, hulking barbarians in, in plate armor. 
And what you think you want is 30 hulking warriors with halberds to charge in and smash apart the enemy's front line. What you actually want is five of them with shields to be placed on a backfield objective (laughs) and never move, you know? Um, And I'm not saying that will go away necessarily and screening and all the rest of it. Yeah, Yeah, screening and stuff is always going to be super important. But um, I'd be interested to see how it played with 40k style cohesion, actually. Mm. It might, I want, yeah. It would be interesting. I think I would be up for seeing what that did to the game and the success rates of certain armies versus others. It'd be certainly interesting. And that was very non-committal, but <laughs> I think it's sort of I know what you yeah. mean. I mean it's obviously it's a it is a skill. Uh and it's a part of the game. I don't know if I'd say I enjoy it. I, I can do it okay. Um but it definitely you know, a large part of wargaming for me is the spectacle, and um, yeah, conga lines just look bad, right? They, they never right. look good, and they slow the game down as well because yeah. the movement rules aren't really designed for them. If that makes sense, like mm-hmm. you know, uh, resolving a charge where one model at the front of a conga line has made it in, and everyone has to kind of move up behind him, and then we're resolving a pile in. It's all mm-hmm. doable, but none of it yeah. feels quite intentional with the spirit of the rules. Yeah. But on the other hand, uh, the ability to screen is, I think, incredibly key to the game's balance. And yes. when it goes out of whack is when you have, uh, you know, part of the uh, reason why eels uh, are so powerful is that they can hop screens quite easily. Mm. Um, and I think there's... I think a lot about that game you had with... Um, Pete slash Vienna, uh, where yeah. he didn't screen out adequately and lost the game immediately in deployment. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you get rid of the ability to screen, I don't know if that ability to lose in the deployment phase goes away. I think it just gets harder, right? It's interesting because in that case, I don't think I don't think the ability to daisy chain models in a conga line and the ability to screen are quite the same thing, right? Like, no, no they're not one-to-one. And like, like in that case, that was Skaven. And Skaven ultimately have enough bodies to screen probably <laughs> whatever they want and stay in whatever kind of, you know, you must be near two coherence rules you'd want to do. I don't mm. think they're a faction that necessarily gets punished by this, although it does change things. I wonder I wonder if it's the kind of change, and because we're, we're in totally hypothetical territory here, yeah. I wonder if it's the kind of thing that might be necessary with smaller boards. Because I was thinking about... Um, the Song of Ice and Fire miniatures game, which I really like, mm-hmm. and it's a, you know, it's a more traditional kind of rank and flank uh, war game with you know ranks of troops that are on a template, a movement template that it forces them to be arranged in a square. Basically, it's very much about mm-hmm. formations and facing matters and things. I really like it. It's it's a somewhere between I think Warhammer Fantasy Battle and X Wing, in its kind <laughs> of simplicity. Um, um, and, um, but one of the reasons it works is even though you might have, you know, it's not, you don't there's tend to field huge armies, but you'll have like 30, 40, 50 models per side, but it's played on a three foot by three foot board, a really small board by Warhammer standards. And the reason that what works is because your units are forced to deploy in quite tight blocks. And mm-hmm. so a unit can tie up a corner of the board just by being there. Cause it takes up a relatively large amount of space compared to the size of the board. I think if you allowed players to daisy chain models in that game, it would become completely unplayable um, because you could screen everything all of the time and things would be very difficult to resolve. 
And so with a move to smaller boards, maybe it makes sense to, to rein in the kinds of kind of weird patterns that are possible. But I think if you do that, you were right earlier that I think quite a, and a few other things need to be revisited, like mm. deep striking, like terrain generally. Um, and also, uh, you know, the, the, the other thing is, you know, 40k doesn't have AOS's deep love for wholly within rules <laughs> no. and wholly within radii basically encourage you to not daisy chain right like there is a natural downside in the game already which is Mm -hmm. you're not getting your wholly within buff if you decide to arrange your zombies uh all the way down one side of the board that's very true and um yeah that doesn't seem like it's going away anytime soon um soul blight i mean they love a wholly within um they love a really tight wholly within as well you definitely definitely lose out by stringing out in soul blight yeah um yeah, I think, uh, I mean, generally, I think uh, AOS is in a really good place at the moment. Um, mm, I agree. It's really, second edition has been a really good edition. Uh, and I'm it, cautiously optimistic uh, that they will just make it even better. I'm excited yeah. to see what they do. We should, we should talk, you just mentioned them. And obviously, the other reason that we convened, basically, two stars have aligned, I think, to make us kind of choose to spend our evening talking about Warhammer. Not that we would do that anyway. Um, one of them is obviously AOS three in a big shakeup to the to the game, and the other is the arrival of a very specific faction that I suspect is going to consume our thoughts and feelings for a while. Um, oh yeah. Before we get to that, though, I did want to kind of check in and sort of ask, kind of, what has your kind of hobby engagement of any kind been like uh, since since people last heard from you? It's the last part. Uh, well, the last part I was uh, painting. Catacross, and uh, I was talking about trying to do them the best I can, and and copying golden demon winning painting schemes, and then I did a bit more on him, and then I um, got terrified of my own ambition and put him back in the drawer. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic Nagash move. Yes, uh, <laughs> and after I did that, uh, then we had a baby. Um, so my hobby time. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Uh, my hobby time has been quite limited, so I was, I've been gently painting a turtle when I can. That's sort of been my entire hobby. It's completely reasonable. Also, I did want to shout out the, the most one of the most incredible things I think you've ever done, <laughs> which was announce the birth of your firstborn child in the AOS Strats channel on Discord, which is a power move of some kind. I don't know what, but it is it is a power move. Oh dear, I was uh, I was supposed to be um, showing up to do a draft. Uh, for a little online tournament we were having. And um, she'd been born the night before, and I had about <laughs> six minutes of sleep. I'd been kicked out of the... Um, because of COVID, you can't stay in. So whilst they were keeping my partner in hospital, I would have to leave at certain points. And I just got in. I'd ordered a massive pizza off the internet. I just thought, I can't. I can't, I can't do this. What's my <laughs> excuse? <laughs> Someone else, please do this Do this draft for me. I'll sit here and eat my pizza. It's a really good excuse, man. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Um, congratulations on, obviously, uh, all of that. Catacross, the turtle, your daughter, all of it. Yeah, um, in that order, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, How about you? I've had a weird one. I had a weird one. I won't go too deep. but So I think after the last, I think after the last pod, was right before I painted Marathi, I finished Marathi. Mm-hmm. So I painted Marathi. Uh, and then finished off my daughter's cane. 
and that was interesting. I finished an army. That doesn't yes. happen. They're just in a, they're just into some boxes over there now, waiting no for small, no small feet. I think I kept it achievable by not like deciding that an army meant a full collection of every, absolutely everything. Right? Mm. I can see myself one day wanting like a big block of witch elves or something and returning to them. But I built and painted the army I wanted, and I'm happy with that. Yeah. Um, um, and that was really fun. And then I took a break from them to paint up some um, Blood Reavers, actually. Finished off Unit 10 Blood Reavers because I wanted to... I, they'd been lying around, they were primed. And also, when we finally get to play again and we have our Mega Gargant Smackdown, I want some more Blood Reavers for that. So um, I now have them. That's how that works. Um, and then I painted Curse City. Um in in three weeks and and the whole thing um which i was a kind of fugue state i genuinely don't know where that came from i've been really busy at work and things have been quite stressful generally and obviously mm. there's the the everything of everything at the moment and but for some reason i just all i really wanted to do when my brain wasn't concentrating something else was paint um and i i guess all i would say is in you know one of the, the standout things but i don't know how to dig into it too hugely is i started using oil paints for the first time which is a big change to how i approach painting i knew i was ex getting excited about death so i wanted to do something new and oil paints and weathering and things felt like an appropriate thing yeah. for that sped things up quite a bit um but the other thing that changed for me and this could be a segue into what we'll talk about is normally i don't build anything until i'm ready to paint it and i don't build anything else until i painted the thing that i'm working on so my my wow. shame my shame pile such as it is tends to exist as sprues basically i tend to take things out of the box and put them in bags and then put the bags in my cupboard and then take them out like clear plastic bags um i appreciate this makes me sound like a serial killer but so do <laughs> <laughs> so it goes um but with curse city i kind of wanted to try something different and so i committed the first week of the project to building everything Prime, basing everything, priming everything, and then doing like a Zenithal uh, pre-shade with some colors in uh, with my airbrush. And mm -hmm. that took a week. And the idea was, it's okay if this takes a week, and it's okay if it covers my, my desk in miniatures. <laughs> I wanted to get to a point where all of the bits that typically like, I feel like projects, particularly like one-off projects like that, have like a startup cost. Every mm -hmm. time you start something new, even if it's just the building time, which I tend not to enjoy massively, I don't think buildings, building's not my favorite thing. Um, or the priming time, right? You kind of, there's some literal and mental energy it takes to kind of begin a project. And so my thought was, if I take advantage of all that energy and begin en masse and get everything ready to go, then I kind of won't have an excuse not to just work through those models, right? They're all ready to be painted. And, you know, in some cases with a good pre-shade, that painting is really fun. It's just coloring in and a couple of highlights. And so... Uh, I, that, and that worked and I got through the rest of it in two weeks. I, I did all of the villains in one week and then all of the heroes the next week, which was last week. And uh, now it's done. And I'm now applying that exact same approach to a new army project, which means my desk currently looks insane. <laughs> uh, I mean, just, uh, your cursed city stuff looks incredible, especially Thanks, for man. the three week time frame as well. And you, I mean, I've never painted with oil, so I don't know what the process is like. But uh, it's if that's coloring, that's extremely impressive coloring. In um, I appreciate that. Like it's been interesting. There's a there's a, a painter who I really like on on YouTube called um, Marco Fusconi, um, who does really good tutorials and is very animated and entertaining. And it was his kind of tutorials about Cursity specifically that gave me the idea mm -hmm. to try oil. So I want to give credit where it's due. Um, and 
I find oils really fun. They, uh, I'm glad that I have a well-ventilated office that no one else needs to come <laughs> into um, because that's a lot of quote-unquote odorless white spirit that you have to use. Um, but there is something about, you know, you have literally become a father this this in the last couple of months, and that's incredible. I feel like by learning how to safely dispose of white spirit, I have gained some dad XP <laughs> despite having no children. <laughs> So it, it did give me that as well. Um, I'm really excited to play it now. I did the weird thing of like, I didn't even open any of the rules or cards mm. or tokens or anything until today when I finally took everything out of the punch board. So um, I think I'll play it for the first time tomorrow night, which is exciting. Ooh, that is exciting. Does yeah. it do the um, BSF thing of having compartments that it tells you not to open until specific points? Or is it, it has one. It has an envelope that for the end, I think, um, ah, okay. which feels like it might be some kind of reveal or something for the, yes. for the end of the... The ending is probably slightly spoiled by um, you then having read the Soulblight book. Yeah, I mean, I, I know people have kind of complained about this because obviously I think Cursity was supposed to come out about six months before it did, mm. but it's not a spoiler to me that perhaps the heroes defeat the villain in the fantasy yes. story. <laughs> <laughs> you know um yeah. so i think i think i think it's a bit of a case of journey not destination but yeah, yeah, yeah of course the, the other part of it was uh curse city and this will be the segue curse city was for me um a way to you know basically i I'm very excited i had soul blight uh i you know i had a pre-existing soul blight army i'm very kit bashed very small because i love vampires a lot and Soulblight was always there, as, um, and uh, vampire counts generally as a concept were always there as something that if they ever happened, and I remember talking to you about this ages ago, and us both thinking it probably wouldn't, um, if it ever happened, it's one of my kind of break glass in case of you know, <laughs> emergency new project. And I, but I, I had that feeling as the new stuff was being rolled out and the pre-orders were going up that like, you know, literally that like, well, I, you know, um, I want death, but we do have death at home. And Death mm. at Home was Cursed City. So painting Cursed City was a both a way to get it out of the way, <laughs> but also to prove that I wanted to paint this stuff, basically. Okay. And I liked the process so much that I discovered that, yes, I do. So <laughs> let's talk about Death Battle Tome, Soul Blight, Grave Lords, because yeah. I think this is an interesting confluence. I've given my background for it. I love vampires. Okay. I like Warhammer vampires. Um, but I am... Uh, a baby in this you know kind of rules environment particularly you were not yeah. oh so i think on the on this pod i've only ever really talked about skaven and deepkin yeah um but i do have about ten thousand points of mixed death sat in various display cases and cupboards uh so this is definitely also my wheelhouse um that's uh flesh eater courts it's night horn but uh, a lot of what was the legions of Nagash as well, um, and Soul Black Grave Lords really is legions of Nagash too. Yeah, uh, now with a new name, and so that it's been it's a weird one. I'm the new models are amazing. I'm not rushing out to buy any uh, in particular um, because I've got so much already. I can kind of kind of play with what I've got um, maybe not totally in the way that I'd want to but it it's um, been an exciting and scary book for me as well mm. well I feel like obviously we've, we've talked about it on and off quite a bit um, mm. so it's interesting to kind of unpick 
kind of each of our reactions to it because I think it's been interesting the changes that they've made to to death and it feels like death has found itself in a similar position as to where it was at the end of the last edition as well right with legion sinagash being mm. i want to say the was it the last first edition book uh, i think maggotkin might have been the last but it was certainly close. one it of the close. last yeah and um I'm, trying, I'm sort of thinking where to kind of begin unpicking this, but <laughs> well, what I would say is this, is that there has been, um, I think, a really big shakeup to the, the fiction around death in order to allow this book to exist in the way that it does. So we should talk a bit about that, I think, about the, the, the fiction side of it and the fantasy of it, because sure. I, um, I really like what they've changed, but I'm not the one with the kind of the big pre-existing investment <laughs> in a certain man's large hat. And oh. so I'd like you to, I'd like you to, that, there it is. There's the skeletal oh. noise. Oh, hurts. <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm a good boy. I'm happy. I love the book. Um, <laughs> it's okay, man. It's okay. You can let it out. It's all right. Uh, yes, I, I largely agree. I think um, the fiction particularly is a real triumph of the book, um, especially compared to Legions of Nagash, which uh, as a book was quite light. Yeah, uh, on the fiction side of things, it was mostly just pointing at models and going, "That's a skeleton." <laughs> um, also, partly because when it came out, when it came out, they hadn't really delved that hard into Grand Alliance death, uh, and then we've just spent an entire edition delving quite hard into the lore of Grand Alliance death, and they had a lot more to work with. Um, I, what I found um, really strange about the book, see, I. I'd sort of emotionally prepared myself for a bigger change. Right. Uh, I, because it wasn't called Legions of the Gash, because they'd gone for a completely different name and Soul Blight was on it, which is the vampire sub-faction keyword thing that they've gone with in Age of Sigmar. Um, it's for Soul Blight vampires. Because they'd gone with that naming convention, it sounded like they were, it sounded like a total reinvention, ground up reinvention. Mm. Uh, chuck Legions of the Gash in the bin, bring in this whole new thing. And I, I was I was prepared for it to be that. And it very much isn't that. It very much is Legions of the Gash 2. Um, both in, sort of in the lore, but very much also in, in the rules itself. Um, so, yeah, I, I had a, a mixed reaction to it, I think. Initially, uh, I got disappointed, hmm. um, and I've been coming around to the book ever since. I think. I think i I had a I was I had less uh, less less uh, horses in the race um, hmm. when it came to the rules side of things, um, obviously. But I think I was. I am, in a way, the theme here, the theme that links them is the title of the book is just whoever's in charge of all these skeletons right now, right? <laughs> Previously, it was Nagash. Now it's a kind of loose confederacy of vampires. Uh, and that's due to, you know, um, changes in the fiction. Uh, mm. Nagash has taken a fairly big hit at the end of the Soul Wars, at the end of the edition that he's kind of presided over as the big bad. Yeah. He's... Texas class- really punched some more points into him, didn't he? <laughs> the ultimate, the ultimate slight. Um, uh, the um, yeah, Teclas 
I was going to say stole his lunch money, but maybe just reverse pickpocketed a whole bunch more lunch money into his pockets to make him cost more. Um, and um, as a consequence, Nagash is kind of like not gone, but in typical Skeletor style, uh, as Nagash often is in yeah. Warhammer stories, um, taking a back seat in the fiction yeah. for the time being. Got shot with a moon laser. And then beaten with hammers. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and um, which was rad, by the way, but still. Um, uh, and what that leaves is a power vacuum at the top of death. And I think for my money, like, I, I like Nagash as a character, but I think, as is ever the case in Warhammer, the squabbling lieutenants are often where all of the fun is in these stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And so I think Nagash's kind of monolithic control over death, the fact that he can and could and did show up basically anywhere to take direct control over the faction, stifled somewhat the influence of a lot of the other characters, even the Mortarks, right? Even though they were the, they were the ones given the most time, it was yeah. like, there was a big sense of like, if you're not a Mortark, you're definitely not getting a look in to any of these stories as a death kind of figurehead or personality, really. Yeah, that's true. I, I do feel like the they've done a really good job with the Mortarks up to now. Um, maybe less so Arkham, because he's Arkham. Um, but yeah. definitely, uh, Manfred's Nefrata, Lady Alinda, and more recently Catacross. I think they've done a really good job making them like interesting characters, um, uh, making them like these big, larger than life. Uh, for me, the Mortarks are like the most, um, well fleshed out named characters in the mortal realms, in- infinitely mm. more so than they've managed for some, somehow with the Stormcast. Um, despite Stormcast being, in almost every uh, novel they put out, um, I don't think their characters have landed in quite the same way. Maybe right. that's just because I'm a big death boy. Um, <laughs> well, I think I think villains often have more freedom in mm-hmm. some ways. Like Stormcast are so rigidly duty bound that they you could replace a lot of them with each other, and you quite quite pass the difference occasionally. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, the Mortarks are a varied bunch. It has helped that there's uh, one Black Library author who apparently it's his job just to write Neferata novels, mm. and he just keeps cranking them out, and they're all right. <laughs> they are fine, <laughs> and that's great. Yeah, that's that's as good as you get. So yeah. that's <laughs> really happy with that. But I like. I mean, it's sort of so the the kind of top line if people haven't read the book and without spoilers necessarily is that you know the Soul Black Grave Lords, the the vampires of of you know death are really the ones in charge of Nagash's disparate legions now. Mm. Anything that isn't kind of Nighthaunt, and therefore uh, Alinda's territory, or uh, Ossiak Bone Reaper, and therefore um, Catacross's territory, or Flesh Eater Courts, and therefore no one's territory, because they are just they just live in the bins, and we try not to think about them. Um, oh, they'll get a special character one day. They will do. One day. Um, is now kind of under control of vampires. And yeah. ostensibly that does give them some key leaders in Neferata and Manfred. Mm. But the great thing about vampires is they don't give a shit about each other and they're as much a danger to each other as they are to anyone else. And that yeah. I really like as a change because it means that mm. like death isn't quite this mono faction that it once felt like. And yeah. it also kind of low key brings us back to vampire counts, honestly families sure. different families yeah. of vampires who maybe they're all equally a threat to the realm of the living but they are just as much of a pain in the ass for each other but in a familial way which makes them distinct from 
other kind of deeply divided factions like Chaos, for example. They've definitely brought back the feel of the old bloodlines. Uh, that yeah. seems to be like a key goal that they had, and they've certainly achieved it. I think one um, really good thing they've done with the book is that every sub-faction has a named character. Yeah. And I I know not everyone likes named characters, but I think they're quite a good way to very quickly stamp out an identity for a sub-faction. And there's loads of uh, battle terms out there where you can pick your sub-factions and all, all they maybe get is a paragraph or two about what they are. And it can be difficult if you're not maybe immersed in that sub-faction already or that book to get a get a feel of what that really means, you know, that someone's Hammers of Sigma, or, and that's a poor example, Hammers of Sigma, <laughs> 4,000 special characters, but you, you know what I mean. Yeah, I do know what you mean. <laughs> right. So I think, yeah. yeah, that was an interesting choice, and it was a good one, really good one. Yeah. And it's been nice in the story more broadly that you've already started to see death acting in more interesting ways. Like, I think we can, we can take the more recent Broken Realms books, maybe off the statute of limitations here, but <laughs> a, a, you know, an alliance between Alinda and Bellacor as a kind of chaos death alliance to, yeah. to kind of knock the Stormcast down a notch is something that I couldn't imagine happening previously and letting these characters act as lone operators. Um, yeah. I just, I think bodes really well for the next, for the fiction around the whole grand alliance, honestly. Yes. It, it, the loosest possible alliance in the world, I think. Uh, oh, I don't know. There's something going on. I know I ship them for some reason. Just, but. just imagine uh, Lady Alinda doing that uh, Judge Doody tapping her watch meme whilst uh, pointing at Bellacore. <laughs> and he points back and he goes, Blair, because that's what he does. <laughs> um, the, um, <laughs> um, yeah, like, I think uh, one thing that was interesting to me painting Curse City, I think it's done this really well in the book, is like, death as a grand alliance is the one that is closest to order right mm. like the only yeah. difference is they're kind of all bastards and a lot of them are dead right <laughs> and so and so but like you know this notion because you know uh, radikar the wolf like small radikar ladukar as opposed to yeah. dadukar um it just looks like a dude like there's we're, there's we're you know the going yeah you know um i'm sorry but there's like but the fangs and everything else are there but you know, they're doing a good job with the vampires of like, these are just kind of characters in the mortal realms and they, they exist mm. as a counterpoint to some of the other mortals and they're not mortal necessarily, but they have, there's something appealing to me about the fact that like, there's also the possibility of a slightly more mundane existence for these characters as well now, right? Like local vampire fiefdoms kind of eking out their um, tithes on the local situation, on the local population. Um enforced by armies of skeletons and zombies but those are more like tools than like kind of manifestations mm -hmm. of some divine will i quite like that kind of slightly more down-to-earth feeling you yeah know. i mean the 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 backstory in the book has definitely has uh you know into vampire fighting uh throughout it the, to the highest levels of the vampire nobility you know it's one of the key stories running behind it is is that sort of um like I say the power vacuum of Nagash taking a step back is uh, filled by not civil war because they never really were on the same side anyway. Um, but you know, just uh, the factions starting to to come apart at the seams of it. Yeah, we should talk about how that kind of translates into 
play then, I suppose. Um, because... <laughs> Coming apart, it seems. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, because I think I think I think your journey with this is really interesting. Because yeah. I I kind of liked it from the start. Because I I looked at it and I saw a book similar to the Safe to Darkness book, mm-hmm. which I really like, um, despite some of its issues. Um, I saw similarities straight away in terms of like quite a broad faction, and they excite me. But I appreciate mm-hmm. that you bring a lot more kind of granular perspective to it. So I'm interested to hear about what your journey has been. Uh, so, yeah, That's it's a good an interesting one. like that. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely uh, less cool on the book than I was when it first came out. So I, I, it's not going to be a big, angry uh, Games Workshop have ruined my life thing, because uh, it's not that at all. Uh, I think partly it's because it is so... Um, Similar to Legions of the Galaxy, when a battle tome comes out, um, the very healthy thing to do is what you did and not compare it to what came before, mm. um, because it's not that it's a new thing, um, and it's easy to say that. But it, there's so much that's the same as in the last book, rules wise. Um, they've, they've kept grave sites, they've kept locus of Shaish. Uh, they've kept Deathless Minions, they've kept the Endless Legions, all these sort of old rules that were key, iconic parts of how Legions of Nagash worked. They've sort of all kept them, but they've made them all worse. Um, <laughs> and I think that's that what that's what made the initial read-through uh, difficult, probably the wrong word, but what made the initial read-through um give such an initial negative impression for me is because you go through it and it's hard not to go through and go, well, that's worse, that's worse, that's worse, and then flick through to um, the scrolls and going, oh, they've that's worse, that's worse. Um, they've done like a real effort to uh, remove rules where there were rules previously, just yeah. lots of little ones all over the place. Um I don't know. I don't know what that. There's obviously was a design goal for that, uh, and I'm not sure what it was supposed to achieve. Uh, I think sometimes it's worked out okay, and sometimes it's completely gutted uh, models that uh, you won't really ever see on the table anymore, which is sad. That's not what you want, right? Mm. Um, but uh, what they have done. Uh, not it's not just make everything worse, but they've sort of focused in harder on the sub factions than previous. Um, mm-hmm. Previous in Legions of the Gash was a weird book. It didn't have sub factions. It was like four, five distinct factions um, that operated with a very similar rule set. It was more like Cities of Sigmar, I guess. Yeah. Um, and here, what they've done is they've sort of. Uh, reduced the importance of the key faction abilities, which is you know your um, your double casting, your um, grave sites, things like that. That's less important now um, because the effects that those have on the game are much diminished. There are some some ways that they're better, and if you want to uh, pick me up on that, because I know that grave sites have uh, got better in some ways. Um, but they've replaced that with like a stronger focus on the bloodlines. Um, there's a, a couple of bloodlines I think they've got wrong. 
but for the most part, they're all pretty good. Um, I think there's three really interesting and distinct ways you can play this army. Minimum yeah. three. There's probably more um, based around those those sub factions, um, and I think they each pull upon a different part of the model range as well, um, which is nice because, as you say, there are a lot of War Scrolls here. It's a broad book, uh, and you want as many of them as possible to be scrolls that you can use or models you can put on the table. Um, and whilst there are some internal balance issues that we'll probably come to at some point, I think they've done a fairly good job Um I think the Vampire Lord and Zombie Dragon is going to be super ubiquitous, right? Across, like, yeah. I've been writing. Um, I, I feel like he's going to pop up in the 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 Blood Knight army is going to have the Vampire Lord and Zombie Dragon, and your Monster army is going to have the Vampire Lord and Zombie Dragon, and yeah. even maybe your um, your Wolf army might as well. Um, I'm interested to see what you think because I think. Um, like I said, three of those subfactions is really interesting, uh, really flavorful, and uh, two of them are rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, so, it seems to me like you're heading towards Vircos. Uh, you say that as someone who has just started doing uh, Avangori and Castellite at the same time. <laughs> um, I'm kind of doing, yeah, I think you're right. The Avangori, which is the monster faction, um, Castellai, which is the kind of blood knight, blood dragon kind of style faction, and Vircos, which is the new werewolf vampire faction. Um, are, I think the three that jump out of the book most yeah. readily. However, I would say that, um, I'm kind of interested in, I think the rules for all of them are interesting mm. and, I always find myself when whenever something like doesn't jump out, like trying to figure out kind of how to kind of what tricks are possible one faction aren't with others. And I think there are interesting things in, in Legion mm. of Night and Legion of Blood that um, are both kind of there for the grabbing, actually. Um, my, I am impressed by the amount of flexibility they've managed to create within um a range that is broad, but then subdivided into these factions that are really um, distinct and, ha and have, yeah. as far as I can tell, quite distinct play styles. And I think there's a place for almost everything. I think, I think one, like something that I, I, I've sort of pulled out and maybe it comes from bringing other armies to the table over time is like, mm. I think death is uniquely able to supercharge a particular unit and something yeah. that divides the sub factions is what they're good at supercharging, but the principle of supercharging is kind of army wide. Um, and, um, you know, and that is, and then you have the battalions as well, which are, there's a few, there's only a few of them. And I think they're yeah. all quite interesting. Um, and much, they much better than legions. It's one, one of the areas yeah. where it's much better than legions of the Nash. And there's something in the interaction between that, that small amount of focus battalions, which is what I prefer the army have, yeah. um, plus these fa sub factions that create lots of moving modular parts that I find quite exciting in terms of trying to um, articulate the value of certain things. I think one thing that's interesting is I think they have um, uh, the whole army is sort of suspended, I think, between two poles. One of them is much easier to assess on paper than the other, mm -hmm. which is um, it, this is an army, particularly the vampire side of it, that is can do like pretty spectacular kind of shock damage, basically. Yeah. Like not about like 
you know, um, cast the live vampires on the charge with rousing commander or the monsters when they get into something or, um, or, you know, supercharged Radicar the beast are capable of doing like amounts of damage in the combat phase that are high by any army standards, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, I've played one game with them so far on Tabletop Simulator with the Castellai list you wrote. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, um, and um, I didn't need half the army, uh, frankly. The vampires did so much damage. Yeah. Uh, you can... It's not even just Castellai. There are, I think, uh, multiple Vampire Lord and Zombie Dragon builds that get very obscene very quickly. Right, but it's also not just them. Like the army mm-hmm. has the faction as a whole has the power to start stacking attacks on stuff, right? Yeah. Like you know, I think only of the armies I know well, I think only Corn can do the same thing in terms of like I'm giving you plus three attacks now, um, through a combination yeah. of things. You know, and also the Necromancer has uh, kept one of the strongest spells in Age of Sigma, uh, yeah. the ability to fight twice on summonable units, which is a a limitation, but uh, not a particularly onerous one. Right. And I think that, uh, and and what's interesting on the flip side is the army has this ability to really hurt something it wants to hurt mm-hmm. if it gets all its ducks in a row, um, but also has so many different forms of like attritional objective play and weird techie utility stuff. And I think a lot with AOS in terms of like ultimately games of one, particularly competitive games of one on the scenario, not on kills almost yeah. all the time. Um, and the armies that interest me the least are the ones that rely on just blasting you off the table to win, you know, and then they'll worry about objectives later. The ones that excite me, the ones are the ones that can kind of force interesting decisions with threats and tech kind of in, in other, in other places. And I actually really like the, the role they have found for the effectively the kind of battle line death units. And I know this is something we'll set apart. I really like the way they've changed skeletons. And I think the new role for skeletons makes a ton of sense given the fantasy and what they are. Um, and I think I, I appreciate this is, this is a big old reckon rather than something that comes with <laughs> experience, but looking at where they fit and my experience of the game and what that tells me, like they now fit in this place. The skeletons, just to take an example, have lost a tremendous amount of offensive power. If you pump a lot of spells and things into them, you can still give them an amount, a surprising amount of like decent attacks for mm. for a unit that's as cheap as they are. But what they've given them is this sort of strange, like almost Necron style, re- like late combat regeneration. Yeah. The, the only thing that the only thing it really reminds me of is pink horrors actually <laughs> like that ability to just not really go away unless overkilled obviously pink horrors are extraordinarily good at that yeah. but i know from experience how powerful abilities like that are and how me- how much people like you see a unit with poor wounds sorry you know poor save and and you know 10 wounds in a cheap unit and think yep yeah, sure that's that's nothing that will go away immediately but there's enough instances in games of aos where that doesn't quite happen Right, mm-hmm. and they've created this scenario where a skeleton, you know, a, a, an eighty-five point mini block of skeletons, is a speed bump, but one that if you fail to kill it, and that does happen, even facing a monster or something like that, suddenly half of them are back. And those sort of attritional things, those like opportunity cost things, and the way that interacts with like tagging units in combat and so on, is like really powerful and i think often what games are won or lost on like zombies having a six inch pylon is like the key to why they're yeah good. see for me with the battle line i think there's been like a pendulum swing 
Uh, right. Previously, skeletons were... They, they did everything. I mean, they weren't too good, um, but they did they did a lot. And zombies were sort of your cheap filler uh, trash unit that got in the way. Uh, and they've sort of flip-reversed that now, where in the new book, zombies are your killer unit um, that can play quite techy and have a surprising amount of damage output and are also quite resilient on top of that. Um, and skeletons, I th- <laughs> for me, I think I'll play with them. I have 40 skeletons, um, so I will play with them. Uh, I think in my heart of hearts, the days of big blocks of skeletons running around are kind of over, and I think mm. they are what you say they are. They are they exist to be the cheapest battle line and a ten point road bump, and they're they're pretty good as being a ten point uh, eighty five point ten man road ten man ten skeleton road bump. Yeah, uh-huh. they are like those five man units of ninety point chaos warriors. Basically, yeah. they're just differently good and they're better. Actually, I think, um, but like. Um, I think I appreciate that change is maybe alienating more than anything else. Yes, and I, I think also for me, what makes the sell of skeletons difficult in the battle line role is how very very good the death stench drove is, and it's really hard to not write a list where you don't staple that immediately in. Um, yeah, I think zombies are really pushed and their battle line, and so you're probably going to be taking a couple of units of zombies anyway. And direwolves are really pushed in certain sub-factions. Um, so you'll probably be taking them. And that sort of then solves your battle line problem uh, in a way that you maybe don't need to take skeletons anymore. And I think that's maybe uh, partly where the issue comes in. I, I think, think for, I, Yeah. No, go on. I was going to say, I think for me, like, I think... I think there are scenarios for skeletons are absolutely better than zombies. Honestly, I do. Um, cause I think zombie, I thought it was interesting because the, the list I, the cast list I played with is quite similar mm-hmm. to a cast list that I am building and painting apart from the fact that I am going with zero zombies because like I, the, the use of anything that isn't a vampire and therefore fighting at the front and taking advantage of all those buffs mm-hmm. is stands on an objective. And, um, like, that game was fun. Um, it was part of one of our tournament games. Um, mm-hmm. But the the 360-odd points invested in zombies um, could have gone elsewhere. And because they just didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, apart, well, they killed the Shadow Queen. But other than that... <laughs> <laughs> they killed the Shadow Queen, but only because they used the six-inch pylon to, like, conga line. There's that word again. Yeah. Like basically, I created a big block of zombies on the other side of a ruin, and and like the and like a line of them would queue through the ruin into the Shadow Queen, killing from the back and piling in from the front to surround her, like a Pez dispenser of like <laughs> dudes to kind of bog mm-hmm. her down. But and so they are very useful, and I can definitely imagine scenarios and builds. And Death Strange Drove, as you said, is very good, which obviously I, I think. But it's interesting, even Death Strange Drove, which is a battalion that's direwolves, zombies, and a corpse cart wants you to have things within 12 of a corpse cart and that is going to maybe cost you a bit more for an extra corpse cart to keep that viable having things within range of a corpse cart is not where the direwolves want to be it also directly plays against having a massive blob of zombies which would be hard to manage in that scenario like also wholly within 12 and a six inch pylon are like rules that fight each other and so i i personally think that zombies are good but they're quite specific in their use and maybe not an auto include 
Whereas skeletons, like, mm. I feel like for 85 points, if I had 85 points spare, and I particularly if I needed the battle line, I can't think of a scenario where having 10 bodies that won't die quickly um, sat to summon onto an objective, particularly through a gravesite, isn't going to be useful. Um, but I, I agree with you that I think zombies have definitely supplanted them as the one you send in to kill stuff, or yeah. specifically to kill low wound stuff. I think mm-hmm. zombies, you know, drop off quite dramatically in value against anything with multiple wounds, for example, because they won't regenerate anywhere near as much. No. Yeah, um, yeah, zombies are also um, t- t- technically cheaper, but you buy them in bigger numbers, right? Yeah. Um, so the the skeletons do work out cheaper for the tens i think part of it with skeletons as well is that they've um they've shifted uh death rattle which is all the skeleton stuff around in a way that um i don't think works out positively for them and i think uh the skeleton armies were quite popular it's quite a you know it's a very common undead thing and i think um there's a couple of uh the, the death rattle war scrolls here that are just going straight into the bin. One of which is a really beautiful new model as well, which is a bit sad. The White King. Yes, the White King. Um, on the White King on the horse. Uh, although the one on foot is also uh, still in the working. Yeah, well, they need well. they need to FAQ that commandability for one thing. I, the problem is, even if they FAQ it, if they even if it worked as intended uh, so the white king has a command ability which is in your hero phase use it on a unit and that unit can reroll ones to hit for that phase um, with the obvious problem there that nothing fights in the hero phase <laughs> in this book um, so obviously the intention is for that to be the combat phase the problem i mean that's just a generic command ability my um, my assumption is that so, unless that changes my assumption is that it's it should be reroll hit rolls of one until your next hero phase Mm. which is then potentially pretty good because it could cover potentially several combat phases. Potentially. Um, uh, The problem the White King has always had uh, is that it competes directly with the Vampire Lord. And in the past, the Vampire Lord was just always better. A 20-point upgrade and you got a wizard and you got better Deathly Invocation and it was faster and it flew and it had a better command ability. And that's still all true yeah in the new book um they've not really fixed that and in in many ways real wants to hit is much worse than plus one attack as far as abilities go which is what each of them has um so it feels like they've just exacerbated that problem um yeah i can see that i think i think it really depends on what the intent of that command ability is because i think plus one attack in one combat phase depending on range is like quite a high cost Mm. Um, whereas a kind of reroll wants to hit until your next hero phase, I think is potentially interesting when combined with units that get back up again. Um, but I agree with you. I think I think the differential is pretty stark at the moment. The plus one tackle also synergizes very, very well with the Necromancer's ability to make them fight twice in that combat phase. True. Right? You're, yeah. you're, you're really maximizing that increase in output, which is how uh, those units always played in the past. You know, you would be popping extra attacks on your skeletons that have four or five attacks whatever it was they'd be fighting twice you'd be rolling 600 dice that's not necessarily a positive thing for the game i don't want to have to be rolling over 100 dice in a combat phase um yeah so i think it's a positive that that's not how they play anymore i think i just think there's an issue specifically for death rattle um Mm. in that they've just 
if and apart from Graveguard, they've sucked the damage out of them. Um, skeletons don't really do any damage anymore. They can if you invest a lot of buffs in them, but conversely, there are better targets for those same buffs, right? Yeah. Um, Black Knights are just awful, pointlessly awful now. I don't really understand what they've done there. Um, they rewrote the scroll to take all the damage out and not really give them anything in return. Uh, I, you know, honestly, Black Knights is one I, I agree with you on. And like, I yeah. feel like if they had. I, I feel like they must be costed because as if they because they can be healed. Um Yeah. The but so can direwolves. To direwolves is so rough for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think if they had the same get back up again, if they fight later in the phase thing as skeletons, it would kind of make sense to me that that's what they did, right? Yeah. They kind of they charged in and they just got back up. Um but uh yeah. As it is, they've just taken uh, they've halved their damage basically, uh, which is unfortunate. I think. Yeah, I'm not really. I'm not. I am not really sure what they're for. Um, when direwolves exist, which is a weird thing to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's very. It is very unfortunate. I think um, Graveguard are amazing now, which is good. But then that's asking you to invest if you're playing the skeleton army. Your ability to kill things is then predicated entirely on this one war scroll. Uh, I just think it's unfortunate. It's like an unfortunate um, place for people with collections like that to be in. Um, like I said, I've got 40-odd skeletons. Uh, I probably won't... Well, I've, you physically can't put 40 skeletons in a unit anymore, but um, I probably won't be running the big block anytime soon, I imagine. Yeah. I think I think there's something to be said for the ability to invest in a certain way that allows you to supercharge particular units, mm-hmm. even if it's not the optimal play. Because I think that's the thing that struck me is like, um, you know, I played a lot of corn, and corn <laughs> also really needs to buff its units for them to do anything, yeah. right? Um, it doesn't have high baked in damage except in no. certain places, and but one of the things with corn is like the abilities that do that are located in very specific places, right? You're going to be mm-hmm. reliant on your blood secretor or something like that, and therefore those that that capability can be taken away from you. Um and um or they're very circumstantial, like on the charge or something like mm. that. And so um it's it's this equivalent issue of, of but what 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 I think Corn can't do that I kind of am excited that Solve Like can is like pick a unit and go, I'm gonna cast some spells and do some longer ranged things to suddenly surprise you with skeletons that fight slightly above where you expect them to be or yeah. direwolves and i think the, the ability to redirect those buffs is powerful in its own right because every game of aos is weird right every single mm-hmm. game of aos has the unit that doesn't do what you needed to it to do or emerges as the thing that held the whole game down and so i think universally applicable or you know someone universally applicable in the sense of applicable applicable summonable units yeah strong buffs is is a major strength and like I don't I'm not saying that like that means that um I think I think you're right that like death rattle army a whole death rattle army out of the box is is so reliant on graveguard for damage and I think that's a little bit of an oversight mm-hmm. um but I don't I don't basically with, with the existence of those abilities it doesn't feel quite right to me to just look to the war scrolls in isolation as the source of damage in the army basically because it's like you know they can really stack up um, a meaningful number of attacks on units that are very cheap and disposable. 
Yes, although, as you've said before, the book has access to a lot easier ways to inflict damage. You don't have to jump through so many hoops. You don't have to cast so many spells right. or hardly so many command points. So I think whilst you... Yeah, I mean, I've I've written the list where you pump... Because uh, someone asked, uh, you know, how can I make my skeleton army work? And I was looking at all the things you can use to buff skeletons, and you can put out some very deeply silly numbers. Um with them uh, that sort of match the old deeply silly skeleton numbers. Uh, but at that point, you are sort of, you are losing that flexibility you talk about because you're having to invest the amount of points you need to spend to be getting all of these different buffs you're talking about, like access to all of them. It is yeah. a lot, right? Like the Coven Throne has an incredible command ability, like the best command ability I think I've ever seen. Um, yes, it's extraordinary. It's, it's a Chaos Sorcerer Lord level good. Yeah. But you really pay for it. Uh, and, you know, adding on all the other things that give out bonuses, uh, bonus attacks, like your Vampire Lords, Radicar, Manfred, these these all... This starts turning into a whole army just on that buff engine. Yeah. I think that's the problem I had writing that kind of list. And, and I think if you're then writing that kind of list where you've got like a heath robinson buff engine ticking along you might as well then slap it on something that's already better to start off with because you're that already spending your whole army on it you know I, that's the yeah. issue i'm coming up with. it's interesting because I, I think it's really interesting because it's an army that has so many ways to buff things like a really high like from the battalions to the like to the individual heroes to like i can understand why the the vampire lord on zombie dragon doesn't have a command ability or doesn't give out any buffs because mm. Uh, he himself is already like one of the most powerful buff recipients in the game. And so it would be maybe too much for him to have the ability to also be part of that buff engine. But like, I can't really think of another faction that has this many flexible ways to give buffs to specific units. Like, mm-hmm. it re- there really are a lot. And I think that flexibility, like, I think the trap is to assume that the trick is to create an engine that makes something unstoppable. Whereas the success of the army is in the fact that. It has, it's quite flexible, not just in list building, but like I found this when I was playing with it that um, I, w- I was really grateful for the fact that, like, wow, everything in this army can do a bit of everything if I line things <laughs> up right. Like, you'd built a list around a Castellai ability where Rousing Commander, Castellai vampires get special buffs when they die. Uh, when they kill or when they kill something <laughs> but um the the rousing commander ability is a once per game ability that lets you basically activate some of those buffs as if they'd already been attained in units within range of the general and i used it in a deeply suboptimal situation deeply suboptimal i used it for the extra damage and the extra wounds on the blood knights but then i knew i had the option to kind of like daisy chain that into different buffs next turn or to kind of use that to get some targeted kills that would earn buffs that would then be useful later in terms of movement and things like that. And like the fact that, yeah, Vampire Lord is a is a wizard and a buff piece and also can fight like pretty well for a cheap hero, mm-hmm. um, can go can click can easily go off and kill several units of chaff by himself or by herself. Like that kind of flexibility is not something that I've had very much with the armies that I play. I think. Fair and enough. so I was kind of gr- glad to see it because it's like, you know. Um, I do and have I pre- a, yeah. I was going to say, I do have like a really stupid minor complaint about, um, I don't know, the imagination on some of the scrolls going on. Mm. Uh, particularly when we're talking about these minor characters, right? 
And if I can just read you a little bit of law. Yeah. Just a little bit of law. All right. Please do. Lady Annika, the thirsting blade. Even among the soul-blight vampires, Lady Annika's thirst for blood is legendary. In battle, she attacks as a sanguine blur, her enchanted rapier reaping a red harvest as her foes fatally stumble and slip in the gore that inevitably pulls around her feet. Sounds like an amazing duelist. She's got four attacks. Threes and threes, horrend one, damage d3. We'll move on. Kritzer, the rat prince. Four attacks, threes and threes, horrend one, damage three, d3. Generic Vampire Lord, four attacks, threes and threes, rend one, damage d3. White King, four attacks, threes and threes, rend one, damage d3. I'm noticing a pattern. Yeah, and I 100% uh, approve of it. It's really interesting <laughs> if you don't like that. I, I don't like it, no. See, because uh, I'm, I'm coming from the world of chaos where it'll be like uh, Aspiring Deathbringer with Gorax and Skullhammer. Two, three attacks on the Gorax, hits on a three, wounds on a four, no rend, damage one. <laughs> then three attacks on the hammer, hits on a four, wounds on a three, no rend, damage one. But you're comparing uh, an explicitly bad melee profile to just a mediocre one, right? Uh, I don't I think mean, it's... I, these, so are, I, these are deeply unexciting melee profiles on the Vampire Lords. I, it's what they used to have in the past. I mean, I've used them a lot myself before. Um, they, don't, they, they don't do much... I think I, the problem the problem for me is uh, I get why they've got the melee profile they have. It's because they're between ninety five and one hundred and forty points. Uh, the problem is it doesn't for me doesn't match the fiction of what a vampire lord should be. Uh, you know, even remotely, mm. I would much much prefer it um, if you know, for example, your your vampire lord who's theoretically able to. You know, when you read the stories in there about what vampire lords can do, they're they're carving people up left, right, and center. And um, I just think they could have been a bit braver with the profile, with the melee profiles on them, and not even really had to do much with the points. I think it's a perennial problem they've had. You talked about it earlier of small foot heroes, and I don't think they've ever quite gotten them right in terms of their ability to actually fight like they've they've gotten a bit braver recently with um lumineth and um the light of altharion and to a lesser extent because he's quite a big model um sigvald being a bit yeah. braver with these war scrolls and the amount of damage that they can do in melee um it, it just feels like a bit of a failure of imagination to me i think they could have they could have pushed the boat out with them. They could have been a bit braver with what they can do um, because at the end of the day, what they have turned into is primarily a buff engine that can go and have a Barney with 10 spearmen somewhere. Yeah. And I think that is kind of what they're calibrated against. Like, mm -hmm. because they get so many other tricks. The reason I, I like the consistency, because I think it speeds the game up and I don't think you need a lot of different ways to achieve the same average result. Um, I agree in, in this case, like there is like a standard vampire lord profile that is definitely being adhered to, um, mm. maybe to a fault when it starts to come into the white kings as well. Um, but I, I, I know that I'm a kind of the exception in that, like, I maybe see the, the value of the small details, like the fact that, uh, Lady Annika is basically never going to die to chaff. Um, I think is really cool and, and flavorful. Um, and the fact like Kritz's weird thing where you want him to die so that you can do weird shit with him later in the game. 
um like that is fun to me and i would i would run that in a list i think because um forcing you know getting something for cheaper in return for kind of like forcing you know bad decisions on your opponent's part that's cool and that's to me where the flavor comes from i agree that like it doesn't quite match up to the power level of an unfit hero Mm. or the kind of fantasy of it necessarily but also i think given the kind of um I think if it is almost like um, there's a degree of like scale abstraction that kicks in on a war game of this scale where, you know, you've got to, in order to be able to scale from Spearman to Vampire Lord to Vampire Lord on Zombie Dragon, you need these moments where like there are clear kind of things those units can and can't do. And like, you know, in the game that I um, played with a Vampire Lord, that one Vampire Lord... um, Basically, their job in that game was to hold an objective for a bit and then route a unit of Shadow Warriors by themselves. Um, and that's like, I'll take that return on investment. I definitely got my 140 points worth out of that unit. They're absolutely worth 140 points. I completely agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, I just I, don't know yeah. that that's where they should be pitched at. For me, personally, like it's I, I just found it a bit disappointing. Uh, yeah i'm th- I sort of I, I tell you what i think to, to link it back to an older fantasy and i appreciate we've been we've been talking about vampire minutiae for a long time now but <laughs> um i think one of the old things about vampires right was that they were they're incredibly adaptable heroes right they mm-hmm. they can be they they are they're definitely the fightiest fast flying wizards in the game yeah <laughs> like they can do everything and i think like a bit like the army as a whole i think it suffers for that jack of all trades thing where like you're not going to find another hero in that price range that has fly is elf fast has like a you know a decent attack like it's not terrible um is a wizard etc 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 and so you have all these little trade-offs right you have these little trade-offs like the lore of vampires isn't great and no. um you know it's kind of reliant on this double casting thing which they can also do and they are a buff piece, but not for themselves, for example, they, yeah. and so on. And so I think what I would like, and I think a middle ground is, I think if there are some kind of interesting combat um, artifacts in there, but maybe a few more things like that. So you have the choice of giving your vampires uh, exciting wizardy artifact or mm. a, like, imagine if there was an artifact that meant that, you know, um, uh, Locus of Shaiish went off on a, uh, five or something or a six or on any successful spell cast mm. and that's like an artifact that you then give very carefully to the to a wizard that you fancy putting it on to give you the ability to invest in these heroes is i think kind of a cool um thing to be able to do but obviously it doesn't affect the name characters which is another thing and so like trying to i think i think there are ways maybe to place that investment and then you get in the question of why would i invest in this rather than my zombie dragon um and that is a good question. And I think that's where you kind of like, yeah. that's, this is where the problems of small heroes loop back on themselves, I think. Mm-hmm. I think the Vampire Lord and Zombie Dragons are really obvious answer to a lot of questions uh, that you have with the book. Uh, it's really difficult to write very many armies without them. Uh, you can write Vekos armies, I think, uh, successfully yeah. with that don't use them at all. Um, but I think with pretty much every other subfaction, you'll be leaning on them quite heavily. Uh, yes, a uh, shame. I mean, I've got two, so it's not that much of a shame for me. But <laughs> it's still, um, it, it's a, it, it can be frustrating when there are so many scrolls in the book. Um, but it is the only scroll that does that job, uh, which is be an amazing, you know, like you said, recipient for buffs, whether that be from other models or from 
combinations of command traits and artifacts. Yeah. I suppose we should caveat with this with like new edition stuff could come oh, yeah, could create totally. some complexity there. Um and if tech, particularly if as has kind of been kind of suggested, like a lot of the new themes of the units is like monster hunting as well as monsters mm-hmm. getting more powerful. I'll be interested because uh, I you know, I'm aware that um like um as as powerful as you can create them, there's quite a lot of things in the game that will just munch a zombie dragon outright. Um, and that's a big investment to lose. They are expensive. And I can, oh, yeah. you know, and there's part of me that's like eyeing Radikar the Beast, who's over on my desk currently being built, mm-hmm. um, thinking, you're not going to get crushed outright by uh, <laughs> Kragnos sometime soon, are you, mate? <laughs> oh. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see because. I think the book's probably quite instructive of what AOS 3 is going to be looking like, maybe, because there are some... Yeah. In the context of AOS 2, there's some weird costings going on. Uh, some things are just very deeply... They feel very expensive compared to what maybe they should be. And I assume that's because... And they're mostly things that are big, multi-wound, monstery um, mm. units. So I assume that that's probably looking forwards towards whatever it is monsters do in the future. You know, like the um Manfred and Neferata both yeah. got they both got better, but they both got quite expensive at the same time. And I'm wondering if uh that again is looking at how AOS three might affect things. Yeah. There's also quite a lot of ability to have multiple generals in the book, which at the moment doesn't do much, but presumably in the future might do something. Because that ability has also been cropping up in um, Broken Realms. Yes, right. Yeah, um, Marathi has it, for example. Yeah, and uh, Nighthaunt as well. There's a couple of ways to do it. Yeah, uh, and so I suppose to that extent, we have to kind of like kind of conclude. <laughs> it's a shrug. It's a shrug in terms of this. But I, um, I have found myself just personally like going quite deep on the faction, like mm-hmm. in terms of my investment in it, in every sense, in terms of what I'm on the painting table now and, and kind of where I want to go with it. Because specifically because there's a lot of armies I can see myself wanting to run. And like, I've yeah. gone through several big like shakeups in terms of how my armies work over the years, like Zinch mm-hmm. and things like this. And um, this is me being the, the, the positive side of this. Even with something like Slaves to Darkness, I got that book and I was excited about it. And there was whole swathes of it I had no interest in running whatsoever. I wasn't even sure. tactically curious, right? Like, and um, that's a book that's reached for a lot of breadth, but like, it's only like things don't quite line up in a way that created kind of like interesting combos yeah, that I, I wanted. I don't think this is. I mean, I, personally, I think Slaves to Darkness is a book's kind of a failure, and this is definitely not that. Yeah, uh, and I like Safe to Darkness as a as a con. Like I like what it's trying to go for. The concept is good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but uh, but the things that have come subsequently are more interesting, right? Like idolaters and empty throne and so on. Yeah, and like um, I found myself with this going like, and this is this is a dangerous position to be in. I kind of like all these sub factions, and I kind of want mm-hmm. to try all of them. Oh well, time to yeah. start oil washing vampires <laughs> until. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean. I'm more down on the book than you are. I think it is a good book with internal balance problems and some unfortunate, uh, some unfortunate changes that lead to a certain psychological reaction. Yeah, um, that is what it is. 
but I still think it's a battle tome with like minimum three completely different builds that were all probably going to be decently competitive. And that is more than you can say for most battle tomes. That's true. Uh, and I think so those those builds also don't strike me as like game bendingly weird either, right? Yeah. Like it's not abuse this thing. It's just use these tricks in the intended way and they're quite good. Hmm. Yeah, Blood Knights are good, but they're not game breakingly good. They're just very fine, heavy cavalry uh, that yeah. in certain circumstances can go ballistic, which is good. I yeah. That's, uh, it's what yeah, you want from your heavy cavalry. Somewhere a Chaos Knight is weeping. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, I mean, I'm, I haven't talked about it, but I think that, well, I've mentioned it, but I think that the two legions, the like remnant legions of blood, legion of might, I think rubbish, unfortunately, ability wise. Um, but the two Mortark scrolls are interesting enough that I probably will play with them. Um, yeah. I've got Nefrata painted and the model is magnetized to be Manfred, so I'll paint Manfred. And I'll run both of those armies, and they'll be very fun. And um, I, well, I don't know if playing against Manfred will be fun for your opponent if they don't have any shooting. But um, uh, let's do Manfred versus Morathi, and then neither of us can have fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's very weird that they've just given him like a full. It's very fluffy, but very weird. They've given him a full get out of jail free card. That he can just yeah. nope out of any situation he wants to be in. Incredibly Manfred, though, so I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very Manfred because it's a move that will absolutely lose you games as well as win you games. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like Manfred. I didn't even think I, I didn't think about this, and Manfred's left now, and fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and um, yeah, Nefrata's new scroll looks really fun as well. Much better than her old one, which was quite negative. Uh, well, as someone who has tried to fight. Neferata with a horde of Zangor that oh, can only, yeah. Yeah, only hit on sixes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. A, a positive change. And like, again, I do want to be positive in terms of like the model release. I think this is oh, yeah, we the best be. model release that they've ever done for AOS, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Like, it's, it's kind of incredible. Like, I mean, and particularly because we've had other kind of beloved factions get updates, but not get like. Mm-hmm. everything they really need to overhauled overhauled right yes like absolutely. i don't think there are any there are no like soul blight or former legions of the gash kits kind of left you're still where you're still picking up the fine cast version right like obviously the corpse cart is pretty old but it's a plastic kit it was, uh, it's, it's, fine. it's nice yeah it's a yeah, nice looking kit for what it is um yeah you're right i mean i don't think anybody would have expected a full like skeleton warrior refresh and they did it um you know i think it's a really unexpected. I really, part of me deeply hopes and deeply doesn't hope that Skaven get a similar treatment down the line. Yeah, so that could be a dangerous day. Um, but it, it feels like a that side of it feels really positive. Like they've done a really good thing with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, Blood Knights just a beautiful models, right? Uh, yeah, they're gorgeous. I've watched a lot of people buy a lot of boxes of Blood Knights recently, and for good reason. They just look amazing. And um, I saw a man I saw a man just sort of like literally supermarket sweep all of the ones in the shop oh into God. into his arms and then just sort of deposit them on the counter as, as he was the first person in the shop in a queue of nine at ten AM in COVID conditions. In the rain, it was one of the most Warhammer things I had ever seen. 
Yeah. I mean, and in their heyday, Legions of Nagash are an incredibly popular army, and I, I'm pretty sure I remember Vampire Counts being a very popular army uh, back in Warhammer Fantasy Battle. I can imagine that this army will be extremely popular as well. Yeah. And it definitely, in terms of like, um, bar, I think, Death Rattle, uh, in terms of being able to push around whatever narrative armor you want to push around, you'll be yeah. able to do that and have a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, I'm interested to see how it plugs into upcoming Crusade-type narrative campaigns as well. It feels like quite a good army for that. Yeah. Also, because it has, it still has the accursed path to glory in the middle of the Allegiance abilities. Um, mm. So we'll be, I will be interested to see how that works with the because it reads a lot like i haven't gone to that much depth because it's path to glory but it reads <laughs> a, <laughs> i say that as someone who's played a full path to glory campaign in the past but um it reads a lot like old path to glory right like the tables yeah. look very similar um so i wonder how that bodes for um the new system if that's how future proof that is exactly yeah 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 ah well all that is left is to paint an entire uh, Soulblight army before Dominion comes out. That's my <laughs> that's my stupid self-set goal. Well, if I believe that anyone can achieve that, Chris, I believe that you can. Thanks, man. Thanks. I'm just hoping I'll have finished this turtle. <laughs> well, then it can fight my vampires. We we've got a line. We've got we've got the 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 grudge matches lining up now. Actually, we should we, play some got, kind of AOS. Yeah, we've got the elf grudge match. We've got the giant adult sun grudge match there's a few lining up maybe i'll maybe do you know what maybe i'll do maybe i'll just run death rattle and nagash (laughs) (laughs) purely to annoy me or yes purely to annoy you like maybe not even against you just to annoy you (laughs) like somewhere you'll know somewhere i'm doing i didn't even get to be sad that nagash is 975 points now uh a lot of that is hat oh my god I'm just staring. He's in my case. I'm looking at it now. So what face is he doing? He's doing his Nagash face. He's only got yeah. one face. <laughs> oh. What a mood. What a mood. Big mood, big man. Big hat. Before we wrap up, we should we should do some questions, which are not done for 18 months. That's <laughs> exciting. Never done questions ever, I think. I think we did them on the, the, the last Minis Monthly that you were on, i.e. the last Minis Monthly. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, we should, we will do a, a few. We appreciate the mailbox has kind of filled up a little bit in the, in the time since. We'll go through everything partly because, um, some things have, you know, been dated somewhat by the passage of time and also mm. because you have a, uh, you know, a baby to look after. So I don't want to keep you too much longer. Yeah, uh, we'll start marginally unhappy at the moment. So. Well, after uh, after a, an hour of hearing about the the the, the, the failings of the Soul Black Gravelords book, <laughs> who would be? <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. That's no, no. You've been very magnanimous. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, our first question. Um, so, what I'm, I'm going to do is I'm going to pull some out of the old minis monthly mailbag and some out of uh, uh, the, the ones received since the last time we did this. So our uh, first question comes from uh, Rorulon, who writes, uh, Dear Minch is sometimes accurate. Um, as someone who enjoys uh, the aspect of painting minis more than wargaming, I recently picked up the Dark Souls board game on eBay with the primary intent 
of painting the miniatures rather than playing the game. Big fan of design of the monsters and the aesthetic of the games and having a blast painting them. Um, egregious mold lines notwithstanding. My question is, have you ever dabbled with miniatures outside of the Games Workshop ranges? I find myself occasionally picking up minis from other things more for the hobby of painting than for the games they come from. I was wondering if you've ever done the same, or does the way you approach the hobby uh, keep you within the realms of Warhammer? Love the pod. Uh, Rerulon. Hmm. I think we both have, right? We do, yeah. Quite different as well. Um, so I've got a... Uh, Flames of War collection. Uh, so that's like 15 millimeter World War Two. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's only so much painting you can do on them, but I have to say it's quite fun to um, weather the little tanks and put the um, transfers on them and the, the teeny tiny soldiers take contrast very, very well, which is nice. Um, but it, it looks quite nice, all the raids on the, um, on the table, the little... Um, Teeny tiny tanks. Quite enjoy that. Nice, nice, nice. Um, I feel like that collection has such powerful dad energy. Oh the, my, subsequent, it, yeah. the subsequent like evolution of your life is not surprising <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, very instructive. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got a few. So I've got the uh, Song of Ice and Fire minis game, which is, as I say, kind of uh, rank and, and flank kind of... Uh, uh, fantasy, but more kind of grounded medieval combat, which also has a degree of dad energy to it, but set in uh, Westeros. Um, and I guess, um, but I, I did get them to play rather than just to paint. Um, the um, the the one thing that I've gotten really just for the painting is the Humblewood miniatures, which are kind of um, uh, sort of animal themed uh, warriors for D and D. Uh, which is a lovely little set of minis based on art by a friend, Lisha Hannigan. Um, and I've really enjoyed painting the the one of them that I've done, which was a little owl <laughs> night I painted last year. Um, but I forgot the rest of them to paint. So I like I like doing things from outside of the GW range every now and mm. then. Although I do agree that the the pull of the kind of like quote unquote utilitarian purpose of models can make it sometimes quite hard to just pick up a model for the sake of painting it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially um you know, if, if you are gaming, then there's you sort of feel like there's these deadlines you have to hit miniatures painted by X time to be able yeah. to play with them. Then that definitely creates a churn where you get locked into that system for sure. Yeah, I have um, I, I've learned a lot from the um, the painting men of Instagram, but <laughs> I have not quite hit the point where I paint a quite cheesecakey bust of an elf or something. And I think that becomes mandatory at a certain level of skill. <laughs> as far as I can tell from Instagram, at some point you've got to do a beautifully oil painted fantasy bust um, of some kind. And I'm not quite, I'm not quite ready for that. But, How else you know. can you show off? You've mastered the ability to paint skin. Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, I think I've, you know, having, you know, kind of, I don't think there's any lie, any kind of any lying to myself about reasons that I will probably um, kind of shame myself on the internet, and maybe just an elf too far is is ultimately my destiny. Yeah. Um, let's let's see, let's hope not, but let's yeah. see. Let's really hope not. Yeah. Um, our next question uh, comes from whatever number this is. Question champion. Fienya slash Pete from Discord. I got that the wrong way around, but I'm not changing it now. <laughs> um, who actually wrote two questions, uh, but I think one of them 
was written 18 months ago and maybe reflects his interest in Adeptus Titanicus of the time. So let's answer the other one, which is from more recently. Interest uh, that's now evaporated. <laughs> I don't know if I go that far, but probably. Um, he can correct us vocally later. Uh, he writes, Hello, Schrodinger's Alpharius or Omegon. Welcome back. Great to see the pod resurrection and therefore opportunity for me to continue spraying my question pipe at you. Mm. Oh, Peter. My question for this next episode is this. With the proliferation of series of campaign books like Broken Realm, Psychic Awakening and others, I found myself increasingly willing to ignore the release cycle and just play with a battle tome or codex. Is this a sign of me getting old and curmudgeonly? Am I becoming the wargaming dad I was always destined to be? Wow, that's coming up a lot. Maybe it's because of our time of life. Um, what is your take on Games Workshop's modern day book proliferation? And do you think it's a good thing for the health of the games or not? Love the pod. Pete, a.k.a. Fiennia from Discord. Uh, yeah, Fee, you're just getting old. That's uh, old and curmudgeonly. Sounds like that's about right. Mm, I think this is a classic case of it's good if it's good, it's bad if it's bad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, there is, I think there is, um, there can be a bit of a, a book fatigue and I don't think anyone likes having to lug like three or four books around uh, to, just to play a game. It's not, doesn't necessarily feel great. Um, mm. I think AOS gets away with it a bit better because um, AOS reminders exist. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I think with 40K tends to be worse because you've got pages and pages of stratagems printed in these books and um, the game's just a little bit more complicated and uh, suffers from, you know, book, supplement, rule book, and they're all big hardback things. And I think that that does sound like it would be frustrating to play with. And I can understand why you might want to just not bother engaging with it. I think 40k also suffers for the fact that um, the the narrative portions of those campaign books just haven't been exciting for a while, no. honestly. Like, and I, I obviously I try and kind of like I think um, you know the the rules of the exciting thing about those books, and I think the lack of a really strong through narrative in 40k. It's such a great setting. That's my kind of caveat to that. Mm. It's a great setting, but I I find it hard to get attached to the narratives of these things as they roll along because they have proven unwilling to shake things up or surprise you or offer answers or, or any of the kind of things that, that... I mean, to be fair, Warhammer's always struggled a little bit with this um, in its kind of dual purpose as story and as setting. Mm. Um, but I think AOS threads that balance far better. It's been designed with it in mind, hasn't it? And it shows, yeah. I think. Um, I mean, Psychic Awakening, I only read a couple of them, but I thought the narrative in the ones I read was really poor. And... Um, a lot of the rules portion of them has just been completely superseded by the books coming out in ninth as well, which just yeah. uh, feels real, real bad. Uh, would make me not want to certainly invest in that sort of book again in uh, 40k. And I think if it happened in AOS as well, I'd feel feel pretty bad. I think uh, it's funny. Like for me, I got into Daughters of Cain with with Marathi, mm. the, the the Broken Realms book. Bought the old Battle Tome, oh. and then had them both replaced by a new book oh. within three or four months. And I didn't mind, okay, because I am an enormous. Well, I didn't mind for two reasons. One mm. of them is a bad reason. I'm a big old whale boy. Yeah. And um, part of me was just glad to have one book to carry around rather than several and to yeah. have the new stuff better integrated into the old stuff. And I mm. like the new book. That's one thing. The other thing is 
I really genuinely have enjoyed the story of Broken Realms across all of the books so far. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm glad, like, I don't know the next time I'll read the, the, the narrative parts of Broken Realms Marathi, but I will. And I enjoyed it enough that I had a very pleasant Saturday afternoon reading that part of it. And if I no longer use the rules component, admittedly, I will still use the idolaters rules, but like, <laughs> Um, if I don't use the rules components as much as I otherwise would, that's fine. I had a good time with it. And I think the role of the narrative stuff, it, it really should, I think, offer value in those books. And yeah. they don't always. They've, I've definitely gotten value of the narrative of Broken Realms in a way that I did not get out of what I read of Psychic Awakening. Uh, it's yeah. been much more coherent as well. I think it's worked really well. Cool. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's your answer, Pete. It's good when they do it well, and it's bad when they're not good. And you are getting old. And we all are. Uh, another uh, pal from Discord, Tom uh, Le Swordfish, writes, uh, Hi, Chris and Tom. Well, wow. bad news on that front. Yeah, wow. Wow. Um, uh, I think this might be an old one. I think this one might have been sent <laughs> prior, in, like in tw early 2020. So, it, it better uh, have been. That's all yeah. I'm saying. It better have been. Um, uh, which chaos go god does the horrible goose from Untitled Goose Game serve? Zeech may seem like the obvious answer, but the goose doesn't act with sufficient duplicity. There's something cornate about its simple, honest desire to cause problems on purpose. Thanks, Tom. P.S. The bird connection makes the goose an obvious candidate for a lord of change, but it can't be a lord or a duke or an earl or anything as it's untitled. See what you did there. Well, wow. uh... I mean, it, the, the goose is untitled. Well, the game is untitled. The, the, is the goose untitled? The untitled. I guess that's the game. implication. That's mm. the implication of the band. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <sighs> I think honestly, I think there's a strong case to be made for corn, mm. on the basis that the goose uh, is quite really just wants a bell, really just wants a bell, and if the goose was to honk like bells for the bell throne that would actually be a summation of the story of untitled goose game to some well, extent now, hold on there hold on a minute the goose just oh, wants shit. a bell oh I shit feel there's an obvious answer here <laughs> the goose serves the horned rat a hundred percent you're completely right it's, it's scaven goose it's scaven goose uh now whether it adheres to a particular clan of the scaven i think probably not pestilence uh, probably not Scryer. Uh, maybe it's a clannishian <laughs> goose because you're trying to you're trying to sneak it. It's a, yeah, a clannishian goose. It is a it is a lovely day in Nagashizar, and you are a terror <laughs> and you are a terrible rat. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> no, I'd play that. Yeah, no, me too. <laughs> so um, I think you know. Um, so I want to I want to apply a new filter to this. Although actually, we ended up going there anyway. Um, you know, uh, this was our, um, you know, uh, Primark question, if you will, for the, uh, for the episode, but uh, you made a very good point in the break. We should transform this in the spirit of the, in the spirit of the, the, the season, hmm. no more Primark questions. Let's have more talk questions. Yes, please. So. Um, we do have a primal question coming, but I also want to apply it to this. Which Mortark is the horrible goose? And it's definitely Manfred, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, a thousand times, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a it's a wonderful day in the end times, and you are a horrible Manfred. <laughs> it works too well. <laughs> the goose caused the end times. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's just like slowly dragging a rake in front of Balthazar Gelt, and now the world's <laughs> exploded. <laughs> Oh, 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 good. Let's do our actual Primark question, but apply the Mortark filter because it's it's much better. There's like five of them, so we don't have so to worry about. So much easier to remember. It is. Oh, this is another. Old... I know who the Iron Hands are. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, Alex wrote quite a long time ago as a follow up to a, a lovely longer email asking about the fate of the podcast, which we've hopefully now resolved unsatisfactorily. Um, yes, yeah, sorry about that. Um, what breed of dog best represents each of the more talks. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, I'm so glad that's not a Primark question just for the sheer number of them. <laughs> so I feel like Catacross is a Border Collie. Uh, right, right. Very well trained, does, does what he's told to do, does it well. Instinctively herds things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, that's mm. that, that's a lock. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Don't know whether I should. <laughs> that's my cat in the background. Who's protesting? Extre- extremely that was, annoyed that it's a dog. That was question. that was Lady Alinda right there. <laughs> Lady Alinda just is a cat. I yeah. think. I think that's the the contrarian point there. No, actually, it was Manfred a cat. Okay, we need to. <laughs> and there's Manfred. That's um, the. Uh, <laughs> The Mortark of Dreamies over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I think Alinda being a cat makes sense, right? A little bit yeah. aside from the others, um, aloof in a way that the others necessarily aren't. It does whatever it wants. No, yeah, no does thought to anyone else. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> incredible, incredible timing. This is um, what you get when uh, Tom leaves. Yeah, exactly. Um, I can't think of a dog as particularly given to betrayal or like opportunistic betrayal. Uh, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to think of a self centered dog. Um, well, actually, my parents' dog, who is a poodle, oh. um, steals other dogs' balls and takes them home. I know, I know, <laughs> and hides them, and does this with despite having a winning smile that seems to get him everything he wants so i think my parents dog might be manfred <laughs> i'm sorry oh, um, thank you um all right yeah. uh the yeah, obvious answer for neferata is like yeah i think i think manfred is a cheeky poodle bless him he gets whatever he wants yeah um i think neferata might be like i don't know like an evil red setter or something <laughs> I was trying I was trying to think, uh, do I want to pick a dog who's uh, one of their qualities is that they're sexy? I don't think I want to be naming a sexy dog. I mean, it doesn't um, have to be sexy necessarily. Like, there's, there's an, there can be, you know, dogs can be beautiful as, as kind of creatures, right? Yeah, well, all dogs there's are th- beautiful as creatures. Yeah, they, they are, right. But like, <laughs> right, but she's, you know, I was about to kind of like shame a certain kind of dog there. That's just yeah. going to get me even, even worse at. So let's not. I'd have said uh, an Afghan hound, but they are apparently one of the stupidest dog breeds available, so that feels <laughs> uh, unfair to Neferatu. Yeah. We should include Arkan. 
I guess we should include Arkan. Mm. Um, a completely faceless, <laughs> personalityless <laughs> clone of his dad. <laughs> so, um, so uh, Alinda's a cat, and Manfred is a boring child. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's fair. Maybe like a sausage dog or something. I can I can see Arkan being ah. like a pug. Yeah, yeah, or like you know, like I really love these dogs, but you know Swedish Valhuns, which are like corgis, but they look a bit like wolves. <laughs> but it looks like someone's just taken a wolf and shrunk it into like oh, the no. baby version of that. That right, like next yeah. to Nagash. In this analogy, Nagash is is the wolf, and Arkan's the little Valhund trotting along after him. I think that works. There we go. Yeah, good. Um, I'd love to get more Mortark questions. These are fun. Yes, please. Especially um, ones that enrage my cat, apparently. <laughs> Amazing timing. Um, right, but that is all the questions that we have time for. If you'd mm. like to send us a question, you can email us at miniatures at creightoncrowbar.com. Uh, we don't know when we'll do another one of these. Probably next time, vampires enrage or delight somebody. But that's all the time, so who can say? <laughs> Uh, maybe later in the summer we can actually play some games and report back on them. That would Hopefully. be nice. Hopefully. That would be good. Yeah. Um, uh, in the meantime, thank you very much for listening. If you would like to find <laughs> more things like this, you can find them uh, on .com, uh filtered by miniatures. You can hang out with the Role Models community and their excellent array of cats on the Role Models Discord, so the link many. for which is in the header bar of the Great and Crowbar website at creightoncrowbar.com. Uh, thank you to everybody who supports the Crate and Crowbar on Patreon. <laughs> Patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. We've got a YouTube channel as well, YouTube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. I have been Chris Thurston. I have been uh, Matthew Ward and my cat Jasper. Thanks, Jasper. Thank you so much. It's going to get dinner now. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's it. That's the end of the podcast. <laughs> Bye.